What a great joy it is to come together today to appreciate this first day of the week, to assemble with those of like precious faith, to be energized and recharged with the truth of the Bible. And aren't you impressed with the songs that Brother Larry just led us to sing together? Faith is the victory, a direct statement of 1 John 5 verse 4. Do all in the name of the Lord, a direct statement of Colossians 3.17. We have thus sung about the Word of God and challenged ourselves with appreciating it to be sure. I certainly would wish to thank Brother Dennis for the great lessons he delivered last Sunday in my absence when we were at the PTP. And certainly Denise and I are very delighted to be back with our church family here today. The lesson of the day today perhaps is somewhat unusual in the following sense. I hope this next slide will perhaps give you an indication why I might say that. The ladies' Bible class for the last year has invested a fair amount of appreciation in discussing authority, looking at it from various vantage points, thinking about it from various angles of understanding. And the last lesson in that series is the one that will be the last topic one week from this coming Tuesday the, as the ladies assemble at 6 o'clock on that evening to give thought to a lesson about authority. Strangely, the emerging church is the primary subject of what that lesson's going to be. And so today, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about the emerging church. It may be at this point you know very little about it. It is a very new movement, but it seems to be growing by leaps and bounds. It's garnering attention, it seems, on every hand, and I would submit each of us at least need to be aware of it because it's going to make inroads and it's going to make a challenge for you and me as faithful Christians. You may notice on that slide, I'd even say this. This movement is dangerous. This movement is going to cost people their soul eternally. You and I need to be aware of it, else you and I might be among those, sadly, that are going to fall victim to it. What I've tried to do is to divide the lesson into just a very few points. The first point is the movement itself. As I mentioned a moment ago, you might be more or less unfamiliar with this phrase, emerging church. And I can understand why it's so new. This movement is less than 20 years old. You might even struggle to find more mention of it further back than 15 years. So turn back the clock to about the year 2005, 2006, somewhere along in there. And only then was this beginning to find its traction. For those reasons, you might note this. Although it is so new, it is growing rapidly. And one of the next statements is, you and I are so accustomed to the denominational way of thinking there's Methodist, and there's Baptist, and there's Presbyterian, and there's the Christian church, and so on down the list. And you and I struggle to appreciate the sadness of all of that because the Bible doesn't mention any of it. But this emerging church is different. Look at this. It isn't tied to any particular religion. In fact, they gladly seemingly see those who come their way from many particular histories those that were Baptists and those that were Methodists and sadly some even who had been in the church of Christ and they now are gravitating toward this emerging church. I hope I've already said enough that each of us might wonder, so what is it about it that's so attractive? 
Why are people in such numbers coming to this? The next point is this. If you do some research with an effort to find, well, what is it they teach? What is it that they're all about? You'll find no creed. You'll find no set of beliefs. You'll find nothing that you can pinpoint and say, well, here's what the emerging church is all about. It's a very nebulous thing. It's not something you can pinpoint and nail down and say, well, this is what the emerging church is all about. For that reason, it's a bit challenging to put together a set of concrete thoughts that at least are truthful and factual, but I think I've got enough that you and I can at least understand what it's about. The last thing on the slide. There are several terms that you will hear thrown around by those who feel along the lines of this emerging church. We will talk about some of these terms in the course of the lesson this morning, but I hope that you'll at least allow them to be in your mind. Because when you hear them, I hope you perk up and say, I at least know what that's about. Words like postmodern. Words like missional. Words like journey. Another one we'll see shortly is the word conversation. But at least for now, I'm going to devote the entire next point to the word postmodern. I hope each of us are aware of the fact, and we certainly shall be in a moment of what this concept of postmodernism is. You and I can't go to heaven if we miss this. If we get confused on what postmodernism is and we fall victim to it, you and I have just lost our soul unless we repent of it. This is bad business. And like I said, this movement has become so strong, it has become so vocal, and it has become that which is so attractive to so many. That word missional, you hear a lot about that these days, and I put in parenthesis basically what it means. It's having a mindset that is almost exclusively directed to mission effort. Now, you and I would be quick to say, it's no doubt that the Word of God tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16, verses 15 and following. And so you and I know that mission-oriented ideas are in the Bible. The thing is, you can't make that exclusive to truth. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus didn't stop the verse at that point. The emerging church would be quick to call into question something like baptism. Call into question any other particulars of truth. You see, it's only go out and feed the hungry. And as important as that is, you cannot substitute that for obeying the gospel. The idea then of the emerging church leads me to point number two. Maybe with these concepts about the movement itself... Let me now illustrate how dangerous this is by developing that thought of postmodernism. I realize that word's a big sounding word, and you and I may know very little about it. But let me highlight this you and I are not postmodernists. Please hear me. You and I, by the fact we're here today and we value this book, we are not postmodernists. A postmodern individual would, in fact, begin to feel like this. You reject absolute truth. 
Rather, you feel as if either truth is not available. That is to say, it is not something that exists, or even if it does, it isn't important. The emerging church feels like everything is about a journey. Everything is about a conversation. And every person is on his or her own journey toward the life after this one. Every person has his or her own backgrounds and beliefs. And we can all learn a lot from each other. I don't really care so much about this objective truth. It's how you feel. Does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel close to God? Does it make you feel as if you're in tune with Him? If that's the kind of way in which one begins to feel, you really are feeling a lot about the emerging church. That next point on the slide. Ultimately, the emerging church people believe that truth is at the most basic level something each person decides for him or herself. If it's good for you, that doesn't mean it's good for me necessarily. And so you journey your way and you follow your conversation and journey toward that which is right between you and God. And I'll journey a similar path, but don't you judge me and I won't judge you. Now, I hope by now this is beginning to sound terribly dangerous. There's only a couple of more points. And then I'd like us to step back just a minute. Because quite frankly, this is enough to make anybody that loves the Word of God feel very uncomfortable. And I don't want a sermon to be, in fact, developed solely about this. One danger about this, before we look at those verses at the bottom of the slide... You'll notice one particular consequence of this emerging church movement is it almost does away with evangelism. There is no objective set of beliefs that I want to convert you to. If you feel as though such and such a thing ought to be done, well, that's fine. But it might not be right for me. And so everything is about a conversation. And so individuals might meet and discuss things But it's not about one trying to open this book and help the other one come to know God. For that person has his or her own way, so they say, of knowing God. And that way may be very different than anybody else. As I said, this is enough to make any Bible believer very uncomfortable because it's completely wrong. It's completely anti-scriptural. And it's completely unbiblical. Let's take a moment then of getting a breath of fresh air. Let's open the Word of God before we go on to the next point, And let's in fact let it discuss the actual facts of the matter about this movement. In John 4.24, remember, these postmodernists say, even if truth does exist, it isn't important. But the word that Jesus said is this, Ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Question, so how is any person made free from sin? It's only from knowing the truth. It does matter, despite what the emerging church people think. Truth does exist. The Lord said it does. And it is important to know it because I'll be damned if I don't. And therefore, you and I must appreciate they're just wrong about this. But let's add this to it in John 8. And rather, John 4, 24, Jesus said, God's the Spirit, 
and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. Truth is a vital and essential part of our worship. Without it, He said, you cannot worship God acceptably. It does matter that truth exists. And you and I certainly thrill at the thought that we can know it, and it's all wrapped up in the beautiful words presented in what we call the Bible. The next verse is this one. In John 17, 17, even on the night before He, of course, was crucified, didn't the Lord pray, Sanctify them through what? Thy truth. Thy word is truth. Please remember with me the postmodern philosophy discounts this book. They don't think that this book is the truth. Now, they might be quick to say, if you want to read it, that's fine. But you're not going to find absolute truth in it. That's what they think. Now, you and I have just looked at three verses that say that whole philosophy is wrong. We have to be mindful of this. This movement, I admit today, more notably exists in larger places like Nashville, Chicago, New York, and places like that. But let's face it, every movement that begins in places like that will inch its way into your backyard and mine soon enough. The church is already going to have to face this. I mentioned in Nashville, if you listen to various sermons or in fact look at various websites of congregations in Nashville, you'll already find terms like missional, terms like postmodern. It's already there. That's only 80 miles away. Look at the next one. In Romans six seventeen, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, he said to them, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Notice, they had to obey something. They had to obey something. It wasn't just how you think. It wasn't just your perspective. And yet that's what these emergents think. It's all how you feel. The last couple of verses, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God then highlights a keen interest in, in searching intelligently and rightly dividing the book, and yet these emergents say that's not important. That's not that useful. How do you feel? If you feel good helping to feed the hungry, then that's your service to God. That's all you need to do. By now, as you can imagine, as we close that slide, this is only a sampling of the verses that bring to our thought the error attached to the emerging church movement. Point number three will heighten our appreciation as I make one careful consequence. This movement then that is based on a journey, it's based on a conversation, it's based on this philosophy that discounts objective truth. One immediate consequence is one that they gladly wrap their appreciation around is there are no rules in this movement. None. Let's develop it like this. As I mentioned before, it's about this journey on which each person is. And every person is on his or her individual journey with and to God. And that individual basis leads me to say this. There are no rules. 
you and I have gathered on a Sunday morning in a building identified as the worship meeting of assembly for the Pippin Church of Christ. And we have done that because we treasure the truth and the Word of God that highlights the need for assembly. In fact, those who are emergents would feel as if that's not that critical. There are no rules. If you don't want to go to church services, well, just don't go. You can still be connected to God. You can still appreciate an intimacy with Him. And therefore, if you want to have your church service at the club in Cookville, that's fine. If you want to take a nice walk down by the river and the lake and you feel communed with God there, well, that's your church service. If you like to feel close to God, perhaps out on the dance floor, they would say, well, that'd make a wonderful church service. In fact, you're probably aware that there are coffee shops and, of course, you can have conversation with people in a coffee shop. That's a great place to have a church service in their mind because there you can get close to somebody. You can learn about them. They can learn about you. You can share ideas about how you feel close to God. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? There's no rules to it. The Word of God presents to us a very different situation than this because one immediate consequence that goes right with it, if you forsake the rules attached to what you and I would call the direct service to God, it's only a very short step to sacrifice all the rules about morality. Hear me, would you? It has been true ever since virtually the beginning of time. If you ever compromise the Word of God in relative to direct religious so-called service, it's only a very short step to compromise morality along with it. Isn't that what happened to Cain? I don't want to worship God the way he says. In fact, I know that Abel offered what he asked, but I'm going to offer something different, and I trust God will accept it. Less than six verses later, he committed murder. He killed his brother. If you sacrifice and compromise the Word of God in the matter of service, you'll soon compromise it with respect to morality. Cain did. And how many other examples in the Bible are of those who did exactly the same thing? It's a very, very short step to, in fact, compromise those other aspects of the Word of God. And so you can easily make mention of any number of things. So I'd like to be close to God. I don't particularly like His rules. I'd like to stay in the marriage I'm in, despite the fact it's an adulterous marriage. An emergent person would say, there's no problem with that. God loves you and He wants you to love Him. And you're on a conversation, a journey in which you can come to know Him. Do you see? Anything is okay for an emergent person. As far as the next point on the slide, I would suggest again it's time to take another deep breath of truth. This is just disturbing. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and following, the Apostle Paul addressed the church at Corinth, and he specifically, in terms of this business of rules, had this to say. Those people were taking the Lord's Supper. Were they doing it correctly? Were they doing it acceptably? Were they doing it in a way that honored God and that was proper in light of that Lord's Supper? The answer was no. 
There were rules about the way that things are to be done. There are rules in service to God. It may well be the emergent church doesn't like the rules, but that doesn't change the fact they're there. And they're going to have to answer to the God of heaven one day when this book is opened and those rules are again read. And they will have no answer. There are rules. In fact, would you go ahead and turn to Galatians 5 and let's at least look somewhat briefly at a somewhat extensive listing of some of these rules. Now you and I know that as God delivered these rules to us, He did it for our benefit. It's not healthy to live like this. And in this verse, I'll start in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Rules. I can't live in witchcraft. I can't live in adultery. I can't live in heresy, envy, or drunkenness. I can't do any of those things because God says these are rules that must be followed by those who love me and honor me and serve me. I know the emerging church says there's no rules, but they're only fooling themselves. It is a simple attempt to discount this book. It's a simple attempt to have no interest in it and still be close to God. We're going to develop some more points about that in a moment, but I would ask that you and I again look at point four. So far, we've learned three. One of the first things, then, that this emerging church would put before you and me is this. There is basic and credible value in every religion. May I say that again? In every religion, they would say, no matter what its basic nature, no matter what its basic character, everybody remembers on a journey to God. And so here's a Muslim, a Buddhist. Here's even an atheist, a person who doesn't believe in religion at all, in terms of God at least. And an emerging church person would say, but look, that person is on his journey to God. And that's what God has provided for him, and that's what he appreciates. What nonsense. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now those are the words of Jesus. I can't be a Buddhist and go to heaven. I can't be a Muslim. I can't be any of those things and claim attachment to Jesus. The emerging church wants to wrap its arms around every kind of belief system and say it's all right. It's what you feel and what you think. By now, you and I can see this is even in many ways worse than denominationalism. At least in denominationalism, you have some conviction in regard to a creed. This doesn't even have that. Notice on that slide, you'll find almost in every case 
that this movement, this emerging church movement, wishes to identify, at least in the way it thinks, with socialism. And without a doubt, almost everyone's a Democrat. They don't want to be tied to any rules. They don't want, in fact, to have to be forced to live by way of any of them. It's only how you feel. It's only what you think. Those verses at the bottom would lead us again back thankfully to the truth of the book of God. I've tried to intersperse in this lesson these fresh reminders on occasion because this movement's just all wrong. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, "'Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it.'" Now, so far, this emerging church, again, wishes to accept everything is okay, but Jesus said, "'Look, the way to heaven's narrow. The gate that you enter is very straight and challenging and difficult and demanding. But if you want to go to heaven, you've got to tread it. May you and I realize this movement is just wrong. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man. Please hear the Master. No man, He said, cometh unto the Father but by me. There's but one thoroughfare that leads to heaven. It's the path trod by Jesus. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard Thee calling, the footprints of Jesus. No wonder that song is so sweet. Might you notice with me these verses in John 12, 48. In the midst of His public ministry, the Master Himself said, He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not My word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We won't be judged by the emergent church philosophy. We won't be judged by the emergent church perspective. We'll be judged by this book. And it has rules within it. Surely one last thing on that slide will be that last verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God in the words of Romans 14, 12. And as we give that accounting, Paul made this dramatic statement. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things he hath done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The emerging church, these four points we've considered so far, we have found a lot of problems with them because the Bible teaches so differently. Point number five is this one. I mentioned at the very beginning of the lesson this morning that one of the terms that this philosophy uses is postmodern. There's another term, though, that on occasion will appear, and I wanted to use it just so that you and I are aware of it. The emerging church movement, the people who are in it, have a very, very low opinion of fundamentalists. You are a fundamentalist. If you believe this book, if you believe it's important to read it, to study it, to follow it, to obey it, you are a fundamentalist. They have a very, very low opinion of fundamentalism. Because again, they consider that. They have enlightened beyond it. They've grown beyond it. 
they have a viewpoint that permits them to stand above this and to look upon you and I as those poor souls who still believe that you've got to follow that book. Whereas they have advanced and matured beyond it. Do you get the idea? They would look upon you and I as some poor, unfortunate souls who haven't matured like they have, who haven't advanced like they have, who haven't come to see the sweetness of freedom like, like they have. They see you and I shackled to a book, literally bound to it as so critical, and yet they've advanced beyond that. They enjoy a freedom that they only wish you and I could know. Would you again take a deep breath? Galatians 3.1 says that real freedom is in Jesus. It's the freedom to want to do what Jesus wants me to do. That's genuine freedom both here and forevermore. But again, they would look upon us as so unfortunate, so pitiful. Let's develop that perhaps like this. I would suggest that again in Judges, the very book we're studying on Sunday morning, we remember that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's basically what this movement is. They want to have an attachment to God, but they don't want His rules to go by. They want to be intimately connected to Him, but they don't want to do it His way. That's what it's all about. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. How'd that turn out in Judges? It was a disaster, wasn't it? In fact, God judged them because of it, the kind of immoral living that came to be their lot. And we've already learned today, there are no rules in this movement. Do what you want, when you want, the way you want, and claim that it's your journey and your conversation and that God will be happy with it. It's nonsense of the highest order. Surely one last thing on that slide then. In that point five, I should say, would be the description in the Word of God. Might you and I know Jesus Himself in, in, in the inspiration of Paul, it says, there's one faith. One. There's only one. In Ephesians 4 verse 5, as that point is highlighted and made, it calls to our attention that great refrain of 2 Timothy 4. As Paul again addressed Timothy, he said, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as is appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Timothy, in the midst of a world who will want to go its own way, who may well wish some philosophy, you preach the Word. You do it when they like it and you do it when they don't. You do it in season and out of season, meaning when it's convenient and even when it's not. You and I have been given by far the greatest literary treasure of, for the human family. It's the Bible, the rule book of God, the sacred volume that leads from earth to heaven. Although it may be that they have a low opinion of fundamentalists, it won't deter you and me. For you and I love this book. We know that it is the Word of God. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. One last point in the lesson is yours. As far as any statements about the emerging church, in light of summarizing, I think most all that we've studied today, it would be fair to put it directly in the category of, of idolatry. What is the whole idea about an idol? As you and I read from Genesis to Revelation, we encounter idolatry on so, in so many verses. Many times in the Old Testament, those individuals would take a chunk of tree and carve out of it something and then bow down and worship it. Or they would take a pile of rocks and bow down and worship it. Or they'd build a golden calf and bow down and worship it. And that happened over and over again. In every one of those instances, what those individuals were doing, remember, they knew about the God in heaven, but they didn't want to follow Him on His terms. I want to be able to do it my way. I want to follow Him on my terms, and yet I want to be able to be associated with Him. That's what every one of them was about. May I suggest that's what the emerging church is about. They want to be connected to God. I like the thought of heaven. I like the thought of this great, powerful being. I just don't want to follow His rules. But yet I want to be close to Him. You see, you can't have it both ways. If you forfeit His book, you forfeit association to Him. If you forfeit His Son, you forfeit association to Him. And so this movement... And you and I could develop verses like Jeremiah 44 and Acts 17. When Paul came to that city of Athens and there were gods, all kinds of things erected, and he said, it's the unknown God I want to tell you about. For the one that you ignorantly worship, he's the only real one there is. This emerging church, we can hope and pray they'll come to realize this. But the way it's growing in leaps and bounds and the attraction that it seems to be getting, and you can see why. I can have everything I want and the icing on the cake too. Close to God, but do what I want. The Bible says we can't do it that way. As you and I close that slide, let's summarize the entirety of our lesson like this. The emerging church is simply stated a rejection of New Testament Christianity. I don't know of any simpler way to put it than that. To accept the emerging church is to reject this book, to reject the church, to reject the basic teaching of Jesus. And to do so is a ship with no rudder. It's a plane with no compass. Fly wherever you want and claim God is happy with it. Sadly, of course, you and I know that as fundamentalists, as those who are not postmodernists, we love the Word of God, and we know that it's only that book that will lead us to eternal glory. I hope this lesson has been somewhat informative. It does remind us of the continuing set of dangers that the devil is able to bring against the truth of God. May we be strong. May we be committed. 
May we be faithful to the Word of God. Today, it may be there's someone in this audience who upon analysis of your life, all is not well with your soul. You are at this point lost. You know it. Don't you want to do something about it? Jesus has allowed you to make that choice. He's allowed you and I to make the choice for ourselves. He wants us to be saved. The devil wants us to be lost. And we get to cast the deciding vote. Which way are you going to vote? If you've never become a Christian, you realize Jesus died at Calvary for you. He shed His blood that you might be saved. You've got to come and contact that blood. You do that as you complete the gospel plan of salvation. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Messiah. Repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as the Son of God, and submit to baptism. And in so doing, He'll wash your sins away. If you have known the sweetness of that moment, and you've risen to walk a new creature in Christ, but over the course of time since then, you've become unfaithful. You've begun to live in a way that now you've distanced yourself from the truth of Jesus. Your life, as others have seen it, is not a reflection of what it ought to be. You realize you can come back to your first love. The Lord with open arms will gladly welcome you back. You've got to repent of those sins and confess them. And He's promised to forgive you. We'd be delighted today to assist you in either one of these ways. We would only invite you to let us know in what way we can help. And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.